Amen. To him be the glory. Uh, point of clarification, um, it's not a unanimous survey, it's a confidential survey, which means that the elders do expect to know who filled it out. Um, we'll see your names, but we're going to keep it confidential amongst ourselves, and you will receive a piece of paper, a document, that's the questionnaire. So, um, For those who saw social media or that uh, Joey's introduction, untouched, pleasure or pain. Um, wow, where's he going with this? Uh, you know, there's people that buy Hess trucks every year, and they keep them in the boxes. The children don't play with them. They're in a closet somewhere. Um, they're untouched. I have a bottle of Dom Perignon champagne in my basement. It was given to me as a gift, I don't know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago. I'm still waiting for the right opportunity to open it. And when that right opportunity comes, there's a good chance there may not have even been any bubbles left in it. I don't know, you know. Um, the point is, is when do we take something that is precious and enjoy it or use it or when do we think that it's so precious that it actually never gets touched or never gets used? So that's, that's sort of a thought that has, has gone through, through my mind over the years as to, to when do we take that thing that's special, that's precious, and use it and enjoy it or share it and let it be enjoyed by others or just have it and enjoy somehow the ownership of the thing. So that's one and the overarching kind of idea that has been on my mind for some time now. And the other is that I was reading a book called The Blue Parakeet. And in the book, um, the author describes that he enjoys bird watching. And he's in his backyard watching the birds and he sees this this brilliant blue color in the, in the hedgerow. It catches his eye, and his mind starts wondering, what bird is this? It's too small for a blue jay. It's not the right season for, um, for an, a blue bird. And he's rehearsing all these things in his mind, and then he sees that it's an escaped parakeet. It's someone's pet that got out and but he, he's drawn to it and one of the takeaways that that i had from this book because he then talks about how do we read scripture and so often there could be something in scripture that catches our eye that kind of makes us wonder a little bit and if we don't stop and kind of look at it a little bit closer then the more we read it the more we kind of pass over it the less kind of unique and special this blue parakeet becomes until we've kind of just forgotten that it was there and treated it as normal. And so sometimes when we read scripture, um, there's something that jumps out to, at us and maybe that's the time to take a pause and look at it and um, say, Lord, what do you have for me here? Let's um, open on our Bibles 
or your tablets or whatever you might be reading from, to Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one, he gave five talents. To another, two. To another, one. To each one, according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. And he made five talents more. And so he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here. I made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, I knew you, master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went, and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But the master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has will more be given, and he will have abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I suppose for me the blue parakeet here always was when the servant who got the one comes to his master and says, Master, I was afraid and hid your talent. I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. 
that's what, I, I, that, that always bothered me. I kind of thought, look, the guy has messed up, and now, in addition to messing up, he's slandering his master. It seems like the wrong time to be judging the master um, when, when he's not coming empty-handed, but he really hasn't done anything with the gift. On closer study, <clears throat> there's a lot of great lessons in this parable. So what I'd like to do is, is, is look at this parable and see what lessons we have for us today. <clears throat> in verse 14, we read that the man called his servants and entrusted to his servants his property. The talent was not a gift as if we could control it. The talent was not an ability as if we might boast. The talent is an investment by the master. It's a trust by the master. He entrusted to them his property. Now, we think of a talent as some sort of ability or, or something like that. But in reality, the talent was a weight, a weight of money. This was a society where laborers lived day to day. They were not like socking away money for retirement to put into their IRA or their KEO plan or their 501 or whatever. They were living day to day on what they earned. The talent was a monetary unit that was worth between 15 and 20 years wages. Wow is right. This was an unprecedented gift. This was not pocket change in any way. The average worker could never get ahead. And depending on how you want to do the math and look things up, it could have been between 900 and $7 million that these servants received as a trust from their master. It was an act of unprecedented trust and generosity on the part of the master. It was the chance of a lifetime. A lot of times, Powerball could be up like, you know, $400, $400 million, whatever these staggering amounts are in the workplace. People are going together and they're buying tickets because, you know, if one guy wins and the rest of them didn't, weren't part of the ticket, then, then they'll all be left alone. My employees told me that if they won, that I would be having to get new employees, so I better get in on, <laughs> on the ticket for the Powerball lottery. So, and then the conversations start, right? Oh, if we won, what would we do? I'd buy an island. I'd do this. I'd do that. I'd have my own jet, whatever crazy things that... There's never a conversation about being generous and giving it all away or philanthropic in some way. But, um, and that's a lottery, so it's not a trust. It's sort of like you want something. But, but here, um, we have 
the one that received the five talents. Here's the $7 million guy. At once, he went recognizing the magnitude of this trust, and he went to work at once. That's what it says. He who received the five talents went at once and traded with them. There was no going back. There was nothing to distract him. He was not going to be sidetracked or turned away in any way. He went at once. Be reminded that every gift that we receive is chosen by the master. There are no no talent people in this story. What's my talent? My life, my mind, my abilities, my spiritual gifts, my body, my finances, my will, all given by God. All human beings give their lives to something, whatever it might be. And I must come and prize and appreciate what the Lord of the gift has given to me. Amen? The opportunity to use whatever gifts you have will slip away if you're not intentional. Think about that. In education, we often have this phrase, use it or lose it. I took biochemistry twice, not because I failed it the first time, but I took biochemistry in college, and then in dental school, I took biochemistry again. It was great. I had the same textbook. While my classmates were struggling with this very hard subject, I was reviewing the subject. Years later, Alan and I were having a conversation about complex carbohydrates or something. I said, oh, let me go get my biochemistry text. Get my biochemistry text. I'm leafing through it, trying to find something about complex carbohydrates. That book may as well have been written in a foreign language. I I had taken biochemistry twice. Now, granted, I wasn't starting from the beginning again, but... I couldn't even read the text. It was that far gone. Use it or lose it. So the opportunity to use whatever gifts we have will slip away unless we're intentional about using them. Sometimes the work is hard or painful, and instead of embracing it and growing, we do nothing. We prefer to bury the gift. In that culture, it actually would have been considered safe. The the safest place for, for something like this talent could have been in the ground. In an unstable world, in an unstable community, the, the safest place may have been in the ground, but not the useful place. Besides being an amazingly generous master, another truth about the master which the third servant ignores is the fact that the master is coming back. In Jesus' teaching here in this parable, this parable immediately follows a parable of the ten virgins, of which there were five wise virgins who had extra oil and were prepared, and five foolish virgins. And at the end of this parable, Jesus um, says this in verse 13. 
Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour that I'm coming. And then verse 14 in our text for this morning, for it will be like a man. You follow where that's going? Jesus is talking about um, the fact that the master is coming back. We don't know the day or the time, but it's going to happen. So what do we do when we kind of get caught short? What do we do when somebody calls us out for something, thinking about this, this third servant who ignored the fact that the master was coming back? <clears throat> we often try to talk our way out of the consequences, do we not? I didn't see the sign. The sun was in my eyes. If I had known, um, I didn't because I would have done this, but this other thing happened. When this happened, I would have done this, but then it didn't, so I didn't. The master is coming back, and he doesn't want our excuses. The opportunities open to a disciple, a servant, may differ in character, in magnitude, but they're all to be faithfully used and exploited before the master returns. There were three servants in this, in this parable, which is kind of unique in this kind of story, in the kind of story where there's a pleasing versus unpleasing um, as far as pleasing God, there's usually two, right? Here's there's three, but usually there's two. There's the, the wise builder and the foolish builder. There's the tax collector and the publican. There's the sheep and the goats. Um, there's the wise virgins and the foolish virgins. In this story, there are two variables. The number of talents that's given But this is real life, actually, right? Because in real life, some people have more ability than others. Some people have more visible manifestations of some talent or gift. Other people are more unseen or silent. And the point is that the amount doesn't matter. So where I said there are two variables, really there, there's, there's one variable because the amount doesn't matter. The number of talents that we receive doesn't matter. What matters is what each servant did with what he had been given. Jesus, the master, responds identically to each of the two first servants. Jesus won't be greeting people in heaven and say, nice choice. What was the game show? Would you like what's behind door number one or door number two or door number three? Oh, good choice, sir. You got the best door. Or, sorry, you're the loser, right? But Jesus is not going to greet us in heaven that way. The Lord is not out to trick us 
into which door we should pick or something. The master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Our Lord is the good shepherd. He desires our good. He is good. Indeed, he is the good, the only good. This is why Jesus tells his servant to enter into the joy of his master. He's not asking me to compare my gifts with others where I might be prideful or have a false superiority or maybe I'm miserable or discontent because I didn't get enough. I think I deserve more and I didn't get it. And because I'm annoyed or upset or miserable, I bury my irreplaceable treasure in the ground. I bury what the Lord of the gift has given to me alone. God has made each of us unique, unrepeatable in every way. And he's loving and he is wise. And he's given a unique thing to each one of us. And he will ask what we have done with what he's given us. <clears throat> His mansion used to have a program called Healing in the Context of Community. It was a week-long program that some of us went to. It was kind of encapsulated um, the, the theme of His mansion in, in a week's space and time. And... While we were there, one of the men who was on the board at the time gave his testimony. And as a child, unmentionable things were done to this man. He was abused in so many ways. His life was a tragedy. He became involved in drugs and alcohol, and he was a mess. And he became a Christian, obviously. He's on the board at his mansion. And in giving his testimony, the shocking thing to me was him saying that I would not wish that any of those things hadn't been done to me or that I had been able to pass them and not live through them because that was what God had for me. That was him working in my life and shaping me to be who I am today. And so he was in no way bitter over, over the, the tragedy that had been done to him as a child, um, but he was thankful to the wise and loving master for bringing him through that and making him a tool for his service because of what he had lived through. So perhaps, <clears throat> The real underlying difference between the faithful servants and the unfaithful servant is the servant's understanding of and relationship to their master. The two faithful servants, that is, saw the talents given as opportunity to serve. To serve a master that they knew and understood and loved. 
There's a book written by Bob Goff called Love Does. And in it, the author goes through chapter after chapter of things that he did or other people did in response to love. That sometimes we do crazy things when we're in love, right? <laughs> you know, um, but, but we're in love. And the point is, is that we need to love God. Um, and perhaps that means that we do a crazy thing or two in our lives. And then the one, the unfaithful servant, he saw the talent not just as something to protect, but actually probably more of a burden rather than an opportunity for service. Fear makes people bury their God-given treasure. We lie to avoid pain. And here we are to that blue parakeet verse for me where the servant slurs his master and the master overlooks the slur on his character, but not that the servant didn't use his talent. The servant was not judged for doing bad things. He was judged for doing nothing. Whereas the theme of the previous parable with the wise and the foolish virgins was to be ready, this parable answers the question of what readiness is. Readiness appears to be doing and being in the tasks trusted to us by the master. Well, I don't know what to do. Okay, think of some verses. Jesus said for us to be salt and light. So if you don't know anything else to do, be salt and light. What does that mean? Speak for him. Season the world that's around you. Be light shining in a dark place. I go to a gym a couple times a week, and quickly there was a conversation about do Christians have something against Buddhists? Because apparently the, the gym owners are Buddhists. We'll talk about that later if you want. But um, a, a fellow came in and was going to sign up for a membership and then got agitated and left and said, I can't be here because I realize that you're Buddhists. And, and as a Christian, I can't be here. And the fellow that I work with <coughs> there said, what do you think about that? Because he knows I'm a Christian. And we talk about aspects of faith sometimes. And I said that Jesus said that I'm supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. And right now, you're my world. And if I'm not here, I can't talk to you about Jesus. So, let, so let's talk about Jesus. So that's a small example of being salt and light, just being willing to open our mouths and speak for his glory. Last week in um, Ken's sermon, he mentioned some verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verses 11 to 15. And I think that they speak as well to, to what I'm talking about here as far as using our talents. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 
If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Our foundation is secure. It's in Jesus Christ. Our lives are building on that foundation. We can't lose our salvation. But there is a judgment for what we've done in this life. And if what we've done in this life is a discipleship that consists of playing safe and achieving nothing, or a religion so concerned with do not doing the wrong thing that we don't do anything. Um, if we're not using the gifts that are entrusted to us by our master, then I think we're building with wood, hay, and stubble. And we're going to arrive in heaven, but we may still have the smell of smoke on us when we, when we get there, because what we've done may be may be all lost and what a tragedy that would be so what are our talents they're varied and numerous for some it could be writing a letter sending a text message that I'm praying for you leading music or worship cleaning the building uh, you know there's there's so many things that we do and as I said there's some that are more seen and some that are less seen but the point is, is that as a body, we all have unique gifts. We're all unrepeatable, and we need to use what God has given to us. The end result of our readiness <clears throat> and using what's been entrusted to us is that we're given more to do, right? I mean, that's, that's what Scripture says here. Heaven is not going to be an eternal retirement village. Um, it would appear that part of being in heaven uh, is an entering into the master's joy is that we're going to have something to do there. God works, and so do we. Some of us in the workplace, we see work as a bad thing, as a thing that we wish we could avoid, that we didn't have to go, that we could stay home every day and be in our PJs and whatever, have Netflix binges. But God works, and so do we. What does it say in Genesis that we're created in God's image? And part of being in God's image, I believe, is that he worked and, and we work too as being in his image, and work is not a bad thing. We're supposed to present our bodies as living sacrifices. That's a work that we can do. We're supposed to renew our minds that's a work that we can do. We're not supposed to love money. We're supposed to lay up treasures in heaven. So be careful where we put our priorities. In Proverbs, we read, a little slumber, a little sleep, a little folding of the hands, and poverty will come upon you like a robber. Now that's talking about monetary things. But on the spiritual side of things, I think we can also have a little slumber, a little sleep, a little folding of the hands, 
taking a nap. I got caught on the couch the other night. I think I slept for at least an hour, but I'm not sure. Um, but just like if we didn't go to work and support ourselves, um, we would come to poverty. If we don't open God's word and read it, if we don't consider what he's doing in our lives, if we're not spending time praying and, and appreciating him for his greatness, then spiritual poverty will come to us as well. So God can take what we have to offer and make a difference that matters for all of eternity. Think about that, the brevity of our life here and God taking that which he's entrusted to us and it can make a difference for all of eternity. So let's not judge one another. Let's not think that somebody's not doing something when in reality, maybe they are and we just don't see it. But let's encourage each other to good works. And let's get going using what he has entrusted to us for his glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the good shepherd, the good shepherd that gives life to his sheep, the good shepherd who has given his life for the sheep. We thank you that you are kind, that you said that you've come to give us life and give it to the full. You've entrusted us, each one of us, with great gift. Help us to recognize what that might be in our lives and then to use that gift for your glory. That when, when we appear before you in heaven, we could have those words in our ears, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my joy.